Chapter 9 of The Mountebank by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 9 They sat a while and talked of the tragedy, the dead Prépompin, at once a link and a barrier between them, lying at their feet. Her ready sympathy brought her near, but while the dog lay there, mangled and bloody, he could think of nothing else. It was Elodie who suggested immediate and decent burial. Why should he not go to the hotel for a workman and a spade? He smiled. He always seemed to come to my help in time of trouble. But while I am absent, what will happen to him? I will guard him, my friend, said Elodie. He marched off. In a few minutes he came back, accompanied by one of the hotel baggage porters. The grave on the waste land by the Rhone was quickly dug, and Prépapin covered over for ever with the kindly earth. As soon as the body was hidden, Andrew turned away, the tears in his eyes. "'And now,' said he, "'let us sit somewhere else, and you shall tell me about yourself. I have been selfish.' The tale she had to tell was very old, and very sad. She did not begin it, however, until, drawing off her old gloves for coolness' sake, she disclosed a wedding ring on her finger. His eye caught it at once. "'Why, you are married?' "'Yes,' she said, "'I am married.' "'You don't speak in the tone of a happy woman.' She shrugged hopeless shoulders. "'A woman isn't happy with a guja for a husband?' Now a guja is a word for which scoundrel and miscreant are but weak translations. It denotes lowest depths of infamy. Andrew frowned terribly. "'He ill-treats you?' "'He did, but that is past. Fortunately I am alone. He has deserted me.' "'Children?' "'Thank God, no,' replied Elodie. "'And then it all came out in the unrestrained torrent of the South. "'She had been an honest girl, in spite of a thousand temptations. "'When André met her, she was as pure as any young girl in a convent. "'It wasn't that she was ignorant. Oh, no. "'The girl who had gone through the workrooms of Marseilles and the music halls of France "'and could retain virginal innocence would be either a blessed saint or an idiot. "'It was knowledge that had kept her straight. "'Knowledge and pride.' She was not for sale. Grand Dieu, no. And love? If a man's love fell short of the desire for marriage, well, it didn't amount to a row of pins. Besides, even where there could be a love quite true without the possibility of marriage, she'd seen enough of the world to know the unhappiness that could happen to women. No. André must not think she was cold or prudish. She'd set out to be merely reasonable. To André, the girl's apology for preserving her chastity seemed perfectly natural. In her world it was somewhat of an eccentric feat. Et puis, enfin? And then, at last, came the conquering male, a singer in a light opera touring company in the chorus of which she was engaged. He was young, handsome, played secondary parts, one of the great ones, in fact, in her limited theatrical hierarchy. He fell in love with her, she, flattered, responded. Of course, he suggested setting up house together, then and there. But she had her aforesaid little principles. His infatuation, however, was such that he consented to run the terrific gauntlet of French matrimonial procedure. Why people in France go to the nerve-wracking trouble of getting married, heaven only knows. Camels can gallop much more easily through needles' eyes. Anybody can be born in France. Anybody can die. Against these phenomena, the form-multiplying and ream-writing administration is parlous, 
but when you come to the intermediate business of world population, then bureaucracy steps in and plays the very devil. Elodie and Raoul Marescot desired to be married. In England they would have got a special licence, or gone to a registry office, and the thing would have been over. But in France, Monsieur and Madame Marescot, and Madame Figoso, and the huissier Wada, who insisted on coming forward although he was not legally united to Madame, and lawyers representing each family, were set all agog, and there were meetings and quarrels and delays. Elodie had not a cent to her diary, which, of course, was the stumbling-block, with the final result that nothing was done which might not have been done at once, namely that the pair were doubly married, once by Monsieur le maire and then by Monsieur le curé. For a few months she was happy. Then the handsome Raoul became enamoured of a fresh face. Then Elodie fell ill, oh, so ill, they thought she was going to die. And during her illness and slow recovery, Raoul became enamoured of every fresh face he saw. A procession. If it had been one, said Elodie philosophically, she could perhaps have arranged matters. But they had been endless. And what little beauty she had, her illness had taken away, so her only weapon was gone and Raoul jeered at her, and openly flaunted his infidelities in her presence. When she used beyond a certain point the ready tongue with which Providence had endowed her, she was soundly beaten. "'The Gouja!' cried Andrew. "'Ah, it was a life of hell!' But they had kept nominally together, in the same companies, she singing in the chorus, he playing his second roles. And then there came a day when he obtained an engagement at the opera at Buenos Aires. She was to accompany him. Her berth was booked, her luggage packed. He said to her, "'I have to go away for a day or two on business. Meet me at the boat-train for Havre on Wednesday.' She went to the Gare saint Lazare on Wednesday to find that the boat-train had gone on Tuesday. "'Un sale tour, hein? Did ever anyone hear of such a dirty trick?' And later she learned that her berth was occupied by a little modiste of the Place de la Madeleine, with whom he had run away. That was two years ago. Since then she had not heard of him, and she wished never to hear of him again. "'And you have been supporting yourself all the time, on the stage?' "'Yes, I have lived, but it has been hard. My illness affected my voice. No one wants me very much. But still,' she smiled wanly, "'I can manage. And now you. I saw you yesterday at the palace. They know me there, and gave me my entree. You have had a beau success. You are famous. I am so glad.' Modestly he deprecated the fame, but acknowledged the success which was due to her encouragement. He told her of the racehorse Elodie and his lucky inspiration. For the first time she laughed and clapped her hands. "'Oh, I am flattered, yes, and greatly touched. Now I know that you have remembered me. But if the horse had lost, wouldn't you have pestered against me, say?' Andrew replied soberly, "'I could not possibly have lost. I knew it would win.' just as I know that five minutes hence the sun will continue to shine. I have faith in your star, Elodie. My star? It's not worth very much, my star. It has been to me, said Andrew. They talked on. By dint of questioning she learned most of his not-over-eventful history. He told her of Horatio Bacchus, and of the season on the sands, when first he realised her original idea of exploiting his figure of Prépimpin in his prime and their wanderings about Europe. And now, alas, there was no longer a Prépimpin. "'But how will you give the performance this evening without him?' 
she asked. He shrugged his shoulders. He had not given a thought to that yet. It was the loss of his friend that wrung his heart. "'You are so gentle and sympathetic. Why is it that no woman has loved you?' "'Perhaps because I have not found a woman I could love,' said he. She did not pursue the subject, but sighed and looked somewhat drearily in front of her. It was then that he became aware of the cruel treatment that the years had inflicted on her youth. He knew that she was under thirty, yet she looked older. The colour had gone from her olive skin, leaving it sallow. Her cheeks were drawn. Haggard lines appeared beneath her eyes. Her cheekbones and chin were prominent. It struck him that she might be fighting a hard battle against poverty. She looked underfed. He asked her, "'Have you an engagement here in Avignon?' She shook her head. No, she was resting. How long have you been out? She couldn't tell. Many weeks. And prospects for the immediate future? The Tournée Tardieu was coming next Monday to Avignon. She knew the manager. Possibly he would give her a short engagement. And if he doesn't? I will arrange, said Elodie, with a show of bravery. Andrew frowned again, and his mild blue eyes narrowed keenly. He stretched out his arm and put his delicate fingers on her hand. "'You have given me your help and sympathy. Do you refuse mine? Why does your pride forbid you to tell me that you are in great distress?' "'What would be the good?' she replied with averted face. "'How could you help me? Money? Oh, no, I would sooner fling myself in the river.' "'You're talking foolishness,' said he. "'You know that you are in debt for your little room, "'and that the proprietor won't let you stay much longer. "'You know that you have not sufficient food. "'You know that you have had nothing to-day "'but a bit of bread and a cup of coffee. "'If you have had that, confess.' "'The corners of her mouth worked pathetically. "'In spite of heroic effort, "'a sob came into her throat "'and tears into her eyes. "'Then she broke down and wept wretchedly. "'Yes, it was true.' She had but a few sous in the world, no other clothes but those she wore. Oh, she was ashamed, ashamed that he should guess. If she had not been weak, he would have gone away and never have known, and so on, and so forth. The situation was as plain as day to Andrew. Elodie, if not his guardian angel, at any rate his mascot, was down and out. While she was crying, he slipped unperceived a hundred-franc note into the side-pocket of her jacket. At all events she should have a roof over her head and food to eat for the next few days, until he could devise some plan for her future welfare. Her future welfare? For all his generous impulses it gave him cause for cold thought. How the deuce could a wandering, even though successful, young mountebank assure the future of a forlorn and untalented young woman? Voyons, cher ami, said he comfortably, all is not yet lost. If the theatre does not give you a livelihood, we might try something else. I have my little savings. I could easily lend you enough to buy a petit commerce, a little business. You could repay me bit by bit at your convenience. Tiens, didn't you tell me you were apprenticed to a dressmaker? But Elodie was hopeless. All that she had learned as a child she had forgotten. She was fit for nothing but posturing on the stage. If Andre could get her a good engagement, that was all the aid she would accept. Andrew looked at his watch. The afternoon had sped with magical rapidity. He reflected that not only must he dine, but he must think over and rehearse the evening's performance with Prépampin part cut out. 
he did not improvise before the public. He rose with the apologetic explanation. "'My little Elodie,' said he, as they walked along the battlemented city walls towards the great gate, "'have courage. Come to the palace to-night. I will arrange that you shall have a loge. You only have to ask for it, and, after my turn, you shall meet me, as long ago, at the Café des Négociants, and we shall sup together and talk of your affairs.' She meekly consented. And when they parted at the entrance to the Hôtel d'Europe, he said, "'If I do not ask you to dine, it is because I have to think and work. You understand? But in your pocket you will find a quoi bien dîner. Au revoir, cher ami.' He put out his hand. She held it, while her eyes, tragically large and dark, searched his with painful intensity. "'Tell me,' she said, "'is it better that I should come and see you to-night?' or that I should throw myself over the bridge into the Rhône. "'If you meet me to-night,' said Andrew, "'you will still be alive, which, after all, is a very good thing.' "'Je viendrai,' said Elodie. "'The devil!' said Andrew, entering the courtyard of the hotel, and wiping a perspiring brow. "'Here am I faced with a pretty responsibility.' Experience enabled him to give a satisfactory performance and his manager prepared his path by announcing the unhappy end of Prépampin and craving the indulgence of the audience. But Andrew passed a heartbroken hour at the music-hall. In his dressing-room were neatly stored the dog's wardrobe and properties, the gay ribbons, the harness, the little yellow silk hat which he wore with such a swaggering air, the little basket carried over his front paw into which he would sweep various objects when his master's back was turned, the drinking-dish labelled dog, he suffered almost a human bereavement. And then the audience, for this night, was kind. But, as conscientious artists, he was sensitively aware of makeshift. A great element of his success lay in the fact that he had trained the dog to appear the more clever of the two, to score off his pretended clumsiness, and to complete his tricks. For years he had left uncultivated the art of being funny by himself. Without Prépampin he felt lost, like a man in a sculling race with only one oar. He took off his make-up and dressed, a very much worried man. Of course he could obtain another trained dog without much difficulty, and the special training would not take long. But he would have to love the animal in order to establish that perfect partnership which was essential to his performance. And how could he love any other dog than Prépampin? He felt that he would hate the well-meaning but pretentious hound. He went out filled with anxieties and repugnances. Elodie was waiting for him by the stage door. She said, "'You got out of the difficulty marvellously. "'But it was nothing like the performance you saw yesterday.' "'Ah, non,' she replied frankly. "'Voilà,' said he, dejectedly. They walked, almost in silence, along the Avenue de la Gare, thronged, as it was at the time of their first meeting, with the good citizens of Avignon, taking the air of the sultry summer evening.' She told him afterwards that she felt absurdly small and insignificant, trotting by the side of his gaunt height, a feeling which she had not experienced years before, when their relative positions were reversed. But now she regarded him as a kind of stricken god, and womanlike she was conscious of haggard face and shrunken bosom, whereas before she had stepped beside him proud of the ripe fullness of her youth. Whither the commonplace adventure was leading them, neither knew. For his part, pity compelled superstitious sentiment to the payment, in some vague manner, 
of a long-standing obligation. She had also given him very rare sympathy that afternoon, and he was grateful. But things ended there, in a sort of blind alley. For her part, she let herself go with the current of destiny into which, by strange hazard, she had drifted. She had the humility which is the fiercest form of pride. Although she clung desperately to him, as to the spar that alone could save her from drowning, although the feminine within her was drawn to his kind and simple manliness, and although her heart was touched by his grief at the loss of the dog, yet never for a moment did she count upon the ordinary romantic denouement of such a situation. The idea came involuntarily into her mind. Into the mind of what woman of her upbringing would not the idea come? But she banished it savagely. Who was she, waste-rag of a woman, to attract a man? And even had she retained the vivid beauty and plenitude of her maidenhood, it would have been just the same. Elodie Fugasso had never sold herself. No, all that side of things was out of the question. She wished, however, that he was less of an enigmatic, though kindly, sphinx. Over their modest supper of sandwiches and Côte du Rhône wine, in an inside corner of the Café des Négociants, it was all the café could offer, and besides she swore to a plentiful dinner, they discussed their respective forlorn positions. Adroitly she tacked away from her own concerns towards his particular dilemma. If he shrank from training another dog, and yet distrusted a solo performance, what was he going to do? Take a partner like his friend, she forgot the name, Yes, Bacchus, on whom perhaps he could rely, and who naturally would demand half his salary. Never again, Andrew declared, feeling better after a draught of old Hermitage. The only thing I can think of is to engage a competent assistant. Then Edith's swift brain conceived a daring idea. You would have to train the assistant. Of course. But, he added in a dismal tone, most of the assistants I have seen are abysmally stupid. They are dummies. They give nothing of themselves for the performer to act up to. In fact, said Elodie, trying hard to steady her voice, you want someone entirely in sympathy with you, who can meet you halfway, like Prépimpin. Precisely, said Andrew. But where can I find a human Prépimpin? She abandoned knife and fork, and with both arms resting on the table, looked across at him and it suddenly struck him that her great dark eyes, intelligent and submissive, were very much like the eyes of Prépapa. And so, woman-like, she conveyed the idea from her brain to his. He said very thoughtfully, "'I wonder... what... what have you done on the stage? What can you do? Tell me. Unfortunately, I have never seen you.' She could sing. Not well now, because her voice had suffered, but still she sang true. She had a musical ear. She could accompany anyone on the piano, pas trop mal. She could dance. Oh, to that she owed her first engagement. She had also learned to play the castagnette and the tambourine, à l'espagnol. And she was accustomed to discipline. As she proceeded with the unexciting catalogue of her accomplishments, she lost self-control, and her eyes burned, and her lips quivered, and her voice shook in unison with the beatings of a desperately anxious heart. Our Andrew, although an artist dead set on perfection, and a shrewd man of business, was young, pitiful, and generous. The pleading dog's look in Elodie's eyes was too much for him. He felt powerless to resist. 
His brain worked swiftly, devising all kinds of artistic possibilities. Besides, was not fate accomplishing itself by presenting this solution of both their difficulties? I wonder whether you would care to try the experiment. With an effort of feminine duplicity, she put on a puzzled and ingenuous expression. What experiment? He was somewhat taken aback. Surely he must have misinterpreted her pleading. From the dispenser of fortune he became the seeker of favours. I, I know it's not much of a position to offer you, said he, almost apologetically, but if you care to accept it— Of your assistant? she asked, as though the idea had never entered her head. Why, yes, if you will consent to a month of very hard work, you would have to learn a little elementary juggling. You would have to give me instantaneous replies in act and speech. But if you would give yourself up to me, I could teach you. But, mon pauvre André, she said with an astonished air, this is the last thing I ever dreamed of. I am so ignorant I, I should put you to shame. Oh, no, you wouldn't, said he confidently. I know my business. Wait, les affaires sont les affaires. I should have to give you a little contract. Let us see. For the remainder of my tour, ten weeks, uh, ten francs a day, with hotel en pension and railway fares. To Elodie, independent waif in theatre-land, this was wealth beyond her dreams. She stretched both hands across the table. Do you mean that? It is true? And if I please you, you will keep me always? Why not? said Andrew. And if you show talent, we may come to a better arrangement for the next tour. And if I show no talent at all? He made a deprecating gesture, and grinned in his charming way. But Elodie's intuition taught her that there was the stern purpose of a man behind the grin. She had imposed her helplessness on him this once. But if she failed him, she would not have, professionally, a second chance. "'I insist on your having talent,' said Andrew. The walk home to her dingy lodgings repeated itself. She felt very humble, yet triumphant. More than ever did she regard him as a god who had raised her, by a touch, from despair and starvation, to hope and plenty, and in her revulsion of gratitude she could have taken both his hands and passionately kissed them. And yet she was proudly conscious of something within her, unconquerably feminine, which had touched his godship and wrought the miracle. They halted in the narrow, squalid street, before the dark entry of the house where she lodged. Andrew eyed the poverty-stricken hole in disgust. Obviously she had touched the depths. "'Tomorrow you must move,' said he. "'I shall arrange a room for you at the hotel. We shall have much business to discuss. Can you be there at ten o'clock?' "'Whatever you say shall be done,' she replied humbly. He put out his hand. "'Good night, Elodie. Have courage, and all will be well.' She murmured some thanks, with a sob in her voice, and, turning swiftly, disappeared up the evil-smelling stone stairs. The idea of kissing her did not occur to him until he found himself alone and remembered the pretty idyll of their leave-taking long ago. He laughed, none too gaily. Between boy and girl, and man and woman, there was a vast difference. End of chapter 9